Hi, and welcome to episode three of Painter Bread Quarterly Slush Pile. Uh, one of the reasons why we're doing this is we take more time than other, other editorial boards, but we stand behind our methodology so much so that we're going to share our process with you through this podcast. One of those things is having a whole bunch of people talk. So we've got a lot of people with us today. Um, I am Kathleen Volk-Miller. I'm co-editor of the Painted Bride Quarterly. I um, am director of the graduate program in publishing at Drexel and the Drexel Publishing Group. And I publish uh, creative nonfiction and personal essays in Salon, uh, Family Circle, Brainchild, um, upcoming in Oprah and all kinds of places. Um, uh, with us today in the audio studio in Philadelphia is Tim Fitz. Tell us about yourself, Tim. Hi, I'm a short story writer and a novelist. I teach here at Drexel University, and I've been reading with The Painted Bride Quarterly for about two and a half years. Um, some of my short stories appear in magazines such as Shenandoah, the, Gret the Gettysburg Review. I've got a new piece in the Madison Review. And nice. I have a novel coming out this spring with Moonhak Dongne, a publisher in Seoul, mm -hmm. as in Korean translation. So cool. Um, and Lauren is also in the studio with us. Lauren? Hi, I'm Lauren. Uh, I'm a senior English major here at Drexel. And I've worked with um, PBQ and Drexel Publishing Group for about two years now. Okay. Um, Marion. Marion? Hello from Abu Dhabi. Yes, can you hear me? <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, Marion Wren. I'm sitting here in the relative dark. It's nine o'clock in the evening in Abu Dhabi. Um, I direct the writing program here at NYU. Um, and I write creative nonfiction essays and I do some scholarly articles and research about writing programs. Um, and I'm just freshly back from India where I was in New Delhi at Shiv Madhuri University talking about Major Jackson's poems um, and how undergraduate writers might learn a thing or two about acknowledging their inspirations. Glad to be here. Very nice. Uh, Major Jackson's name is going to come up twice because I was going to announce toward the end that he's going to be one of our alumni guests on an upcoming Yay. episode. So stay tuned. <laughs> um, all right. Thank you, Marion. Um, Marion is uh, henceforth today going to be called Wren or Dr. Wren because <laughs> another one of our editors with us today is Miriam. And so we don't have to do that with the N's and the M's. Marion will be... The Renster. And now, so Miriam, why don't, why don't you tell us who you are and where you are? I'm Miriam Heyer. I'm a senior editor with Pace of Bride Quarterly, but I started as an intern. I write fiction, though I don't publish very much of it. Uh, and right now I am sitting on a red folding chair that I'm going to try not to fall out of. <laughs> okay. And now we have Jason. Hi, I'm Jason Schneiderman. Um, I'm the head of the New York staff. I think I joined PDQ about a decade ago, although it always seems fuzzy, the actual origins. <laughs> I'm a poet. Um, I have written two books of poems, and then I have a third book of poems coming out from Red Hen in April. Wonderful. Did I say I was the head of the New York staff? I'm the head of the, when Marion, <laughs> sorry, when Dr. Wren went to Abu Dhabi. <laughs> 
<laughs> yes, and you've done a smashing job. We're 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 yes, very happy to have all these cities involved. Um, so the poems that we're going to discuss today can be found on um, our show notes on our website pbq.drexel.edu, and uh, we're going to start with the work. But everything has a story behind it, so um, I would like to tell a little story about the pieces that we're about to look at. Um, Tim Fitz, uh, one of the editors with us, uh, saw this group of poems and said, you know what, they're going to get snagged up. I have to pull her to the top of the slush pile. And he did. And we looked at the work and um, uh, when we and we contacted the poet about this uh, first poem that we're going to read. It's called Lost Colony. It's in several sections. And we told her we only wanted one of those sections. And um, she said, well, guess what? I've done a lot of revision. And I've got a whole new poem for you. So she sent us that and a couple others. And Tim was right. A couple of the others in her initial submission to us had been uh, already scooped up by other presses. So today we have three poems uh, from her that we're going to look at. So, Tim, why don't you start us off? Okay, great. Yeah. The, um, the first when I first read these. It was I was about three lines in when I knew I was in love with the poems. There was something about the the images and the voice in the poems that just hit that nerve. Uh, so the first one, uh, the first stanza is Lost Colony. Settled in the spring of 1584, Roanoke was the first English colony in North America. We built two-story houses with stone walls on dry mud, the island a crumbling sandbar pummeled by wind and waves. We erected fences and fence posts, laid claim to a patch of wilderness like Ptolemy mapping the heavens, giving titles to congregations of stars. We found a bay with oysters more numerous than pebbles and a seashore of bright and a seashore bright with starfish and sand dollars. What we didn't find was gold to fill our ships or rain to coax our harvest. For three years, no sails appeared on the horizon. The way I waited for you, love absent on the horizon. Only the blinding clarity of a cloudless sky ushering us towards winter. Disaster is the absence of events. The sun wheeled the heavens like a flour mill. Everlasting waves lashed at the shore. No boats in sight. The sea rolled back our memories of home. The reek of urine in the streets of London. The towers of Parliament spearing the sky like a row of bayonets above a river of blood. The, the holes of abandoned vessels lurking beyond sight. Part two, C-R-O, letters carved into a tree stump at Roanoke before the colony's disappearance in 1590. Nothing remained of what we owned, no pottery, no tools, not even our own bones. What we brought with us was filched by the fingers of the ocean and the shadow of the moon, not even a dream in which you appear, a shadow behind a wall of water. Beloved, did I imagine us walking hand in hand in the city of cathedrals, your hands smelling like baked bread, the afternoon sun glazing rooftops and sidewalks with gold. I hold on to evidence, a pebble plucked from the Rue Mong, a sprig of lavender from the apothecary, the dress I wore the last night. On the island, the letters C-R-O, a bird with a golden beak and black wings, all that's left to tell of our departure. No violence had been done. We simply gave up, waiting for salvation to appear. Like a chalice falling out of the heavens or the waters parting to reveal a road, I gave birth to a child. Even without news of you, we are happy. How bright the moon shines without city lights. 
I remain ever your loving Eleanor. Three. 500, the number of mountains destroyed by mountaintop removal coal mining in Appalachia, including Virginia, West Virginia, Kentucky, and Tennessee. We named her Virginia, land of Blue Ridge Mountains, fish-chalked rivers, and timber stands vast enough to build all the battleships of Europe. After centuries, we are still after what brought us here. Timber, fur, coal, exhumed remains of ancient forests we burned to light our homes. Today, asphalt cuts through this valley like a ribbon of steel, and explosions shave the scalp off of tree-covered mountains. Rocks shatter like fragments of a skull. Men excavate hillsides, blast through rock, bringing down avalanches of boulders, mud, and branches. Bodies tumble down like logs. The women bury themselves in their coal-stained clothes to the children they misbury. Some abandoned this place, let mud and rain pull their houses back into the earth. Most stayed, subsisting from the mountains they helped destroy. This gutted Appalachia is a war zone, but one we still call home. Four, Arlington, Virginia, June 1992. Dear Chen Ying, Virginia is beautiful. Is a beautiful. I walk to the Potomac River with mother every evening, and we watch the sun go down over the mountains, orange slices on the water, geese gliding over the surface like the airplanes landing at Reagan Airport. Everything here is bigger and faster. We ride in dragons shaped like cars. Here we play with Barbie dolls instead of silkworms. And in the autumn, the leaves turn red like the lanterns during the spring festival. And we light candles inside pumpkins carved with hideous faces. Unlike our friendly family ghosts, they have no names and confer no blessings. I am learning new words, crow, cloud, kite. You must speak here in order to survive. In social studies, we learned about a group of English people who sailed here in a tiny ship, built a settlement on an island, and disappeared a few years later. Eleanor's father came back to look for them, but he never found his daughter or his grandchild. I am thinking of her today, the family she abandoned, or who abandoned her, the beach extinguished of, the st of stars, the country's interior so vast and full of terrors, the night rustling with strange sounds. Sometimes you don't know enough to be afraid. You only know the air is clean here. It smells like daffodils. The children have yellow hair like the tassels of corn and like scarecrows. It's hard to tell if they're real, but when they fall, they cry like we do. While I still remember how to form these characters, tell your mother thank you for taking care of me before I came. Maybe I'll send you the flowers I'm growing, heliotrope, and nasturtiums pressed into dictionaries we should study but use as weights. Until then, I subsist on the memory of your smiles, the sticky buns we ate together on festival days. I miss you, Chang Zin. Ooh. Thanks, everybody. That was a great mm -hmm. read. Yeah. Well, this is... Um, it's unfair to talk about what the poem used to look like, but this is a, a big overhaul from the first time we saw it. Um, it's a lot to take in. 
but there's so much. Well, I think I'm going to jump in if you don't, if you don't, mind. I have to tell you, like listening to this, this piece and then being able to read a piece of it function, like, um, almost like a whirlpool or a tornado. Like it's sort of, it was a wide funnel at the top and then narrowed down into the sort of specificity of the recent pass of this letter from 1992. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, and it's really elegantly done the way it moves. It's, it's sco- like scale and it's scope into this epistle at the end um, in the voice of this, this younger person who's been dislocated. Right. Um, so I, that's the, for what it's worth. I thought I would start us there. Uh, I that's really a lovely description. The way the pieces of history resonated against each other, that mm-hmm. the letter from the second section mm-hmm. in the voice of Eleanor then gets picked up in the fourth as kind of the history, as the new history that this person is bringing herself into. I, th- I thought it was yeah. really amazing. I love the line in the last letter, uh, you don't know enough to be afraid. Sometimes you don't know enough to be afraid. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's something really um, connecting about uh, foreign people coming to this place and and forming memories of it and knowing that they don't know enough to really know the potential damage that could be done. And I think that the fact that we travel through time in this space is something that's really compelling. I I would love to hear um, Tim's opinion about all of this, having seen it like in the in the slush pile identified the this multi-part poem is definitely worth our consideration. When you when you hear it now, when you see it on the page, what's what's your what's your reaction? Well, sort of similar to what I felt when I first started reading it, because I was on kind of a reading drought at the time. I'd gone for about a (laughs) month without reading something. It didn't resonate with me personally. I know some people like certain things and some people dislike and we talk about it at the meetings, but the things that hit a note with me wasn't happening. And I was starting to worry if it was me or if it was the work or what was mm-hmm. what the deal was. And when I started reading this, the, uh, the images jumped out at me, the language jumped out. And I really liked how it wasn't overly sentimental and it so easily could have been overly sentimental and how, and how yeah. mm-hmm. Clara um, negotiated that in her work, which mm-hmm. I, I really appreciated that because I, I hate it when that type of sentimentality spoils it for a potentially uh, good piece of work. So when I see this now, I, I, I see how consistently she navigates that territory through the drafts and, um, mm-hmm. And it didn't, uh, like I said before, it, it only took a couple of uh, lines before I knew the rest of what I was going to read was going to be good. <laughs> and I was hoping it wouldn't disappoint me, and it didn't. And um, and then I looked at the date, and I saw that it had been in the slush pile for about five or six months, and I mm-hmm. thought, there's no way, there's no <laughs> way yeah. that this hasn't yeah. been, th- yeah. this isn't getting snapped up somewhere else. Yeah. So I felt like we had to uh, move a little faster. So I was happy that Kathleen felt the same way. 
mm-hmm. with the work. But mm-hmm. um, so I'm really happy that it's getting the attention that it is. I feel I've, it makes me feel really good as a reader um, and as a, as a writer, too. I feel like it's nice when um, when people's work gets the type of attention that it deserves. So I'm, yeah. I'm really happy with these pieces. Yeah. That's interesting. I think that is something that people often misconceive about editors. Like, I think that when people think about us as gatekeepers instead of curators, they think of us as like these nasty people who go through like <laughs> checking, you know, discarding things and rejecting. And the truth is, like, if we reject too much, we're like, are we bad people? Right. <laughs> like, <you> know, <laughs> you're not liking all of this work. Well, right. I mean, I think we're reading the exact opposite. We're reading wanting to like it, right? We're Mm -hmm. reading with an open heart and saying, please, please stop me. Right. (laughs) And I, and that, that's a way that I talk about it a lot too, is like, you've got to stop the editors from moving on. Right. And this piece certainly did. So also what we do for our readership is what Tim did for us. Right. That like the whole journal is saying, Hey reader, you have to take a look at this. Right. That we have to love it enough to actually kind of like make sure that someone else sees it. Right. Right. Um, so, and I just, I want to just like also just reassert like the, the wonderful creepiness of the way the poem works. And I use the word creepy because like that Roanoke colony story is, mm-hmm. that's a ghost story, right? Like that the colony was, it's a mystery what happened to those people in the 1500s, right? Mm-hmm. Like it just disappeared. And the, and the specificity of the poem is I, there is, there was a historical figure like an Eleanor mm-hmm. who, who figured in that, that history. And so like, I, I think in, what's wonderful about the way the piece unfolds is this like uncanny presentation of facts around history, facts around Virginia. And then this formulation in the, the voice of the, the final letter writer, who's making sense of this, um, like, alien story and putting those pieces together. And then it gives you a sense of her own new, new place, her new stance, her new citizenship, or however you might figure that. So I'm, I'm, I'm a fan of Clara Fang. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I was also really impressed that the Roanoke story was treated as part of a continuum, right? Mm-hmm. Because usually mm-hmm. the Roanoke story is this sort of orphaned colony that has nothing to do with anything else. And like, it's like an American horror story season one where they're, you know, and I was zombie apocalypse. Right. But I was so amazed that um, Clara is able to weave it into a history that continues up through um, a recent immigrant's life, that it, it's part of the continuum of people coming to a new place and in many ways destroying it while loving it, that, that making a yeah. home is not necessarily separate from destroying a place. And you know that, that search for peace and that search for comfort and that search for cleanliness and family and structure is so powerfully driving everyone across the pond. And I, I, I thought that was really beautifully done. Absolutely. I think that the other part of that continuum or continuity is that there's there's some kind of romance or longing in, you know, the, the person who's watching the horizon without boats. 
Um, mm-hmm. You know, that's one speaker. And then in the in the final, the fourth section, you have um, someone who comes right out and says, I miss you. And it's this idea that there's some fundamental thing that happens in this landscape when you're missing someone else. Yeah. yeah. Actually, um, Ren, going back to what you said about, um, you know, the creepiness earlier, I really liked in the um, second uh, part two, um, the the shift of the verb tense here. So it's, you know, the colony has failed by this point. Um, you know, nothing remained of what we owned. Um, and then later, no violence had been done. So this is all her after the fact. But um, and Eleanor is yeah. speaking here. Um, but we, you know, we don't know what happens to her. And I think that adds to that whole, um, you know, what you're talking about, the creepiness. But it's not outright. It's very late. Yeah. 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 You guys, I mean, I, I'm like holding myself back from quoting line after line that is just so <laughs> yeah. beautiful. And she just does such a fabulous job of, of ending each section, you know, uh, the end of three, mm-hmm. this gutted Appalachia is a war zone, but one we still call home. Mm-hmm. That's gorgeous. And like Miriam said, the very last lines are until then I subsist on the memory of your smiles. Yeah. I miss you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. To, and as as Ren started the whole thing, like we start in this vortex and and funnel down to something that specific and gut wrenching and emotional and individual, you know, to a specific person. It's just gorgeous. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, Kathleen, Kathleen, I love it. It's that word subsist too, mm-hmm. that points back to Appalachia. Like it's this like stitch back into the, the, the fragments of the poem, right? Mm-hmm. The whole thing is so carefully orchestrated. It's, yeah. it's easy to trust the, the craft of it. And, um, it's, that's delightful. Yeah. That's delightful. I think we could talk about this for our whole time, but I think we might be ready. <laughs> I think we might be ready to vote and our listeners can, um, can see this poem in the show notes. And uh, I think I think I will move that we vote. Do we vote to vote? Vote yes. to vote? Yes. yes? <laughs> okay. So in the studio, we're going to use uh, PBQ's um, thumbs up rule. And the <laughs> remote people are going to um, text in their vote to our wonderful uh, producer and engineer, Joe. So one, two, three, vote. Okay. Okay. Well, we're three in the studio and remotely. Two yes, one one no vote. Two yes and one no. One no vote. No. One no no vote. One no vote. No, it's a heart. I sent you an emoji. (laughs) (laughs) The emoji did not come through, but your sentiment did. So what this means is that Clara Fang's poem, Lost Colony, is in in its entirety. We are thrilled. And that now means our listeners can both see it in the show notes and in Painter Bread Quarterly. Thank you very much, Clara. Um, So yeah. So this is how slush rises, right? You, you stop us in our tracks and um, get get risen right to the top. Uh, so we have a couple more from the same poet. Um, uh, we have the next one is called Don't Go Away. And I'll just jump right into that one. Don't go away. The night shakes its wings and the sky hasn't folded in its, sorry, hasn't folded its whitewashed lawn chairs. Hyacinths and the garden gleam like pale fire. 
The forests are crammed with shadowy fish. I heard you say, I don't know when I'm coming back. Once I lost my car in a strange city while we circled the streets searching for a way home. All was dark except where we glimpsed ballroom dancers flickering like moths through a window. At dinner, we spoke to each other, one or two words only. Yet here we are, alone in your car, while I cast my net for something to say. Stay. Take me with you. If you go, I will see your eyes looking back in every corner. I won't have to listen to hear you call my name. If you go, you must come back quickly or else clouds will sweep the rooms with rain. She has a great way of describing loss and sadness. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Tim, uh, you know, on the last one, you were saying that you liked the lack of sentimentality, that the emotion was expressed without sentimentality. Right. This is more direct and naked in its sentimentality. But it's not cheesy. But it, yeah, uh-huh. but somehow yeah. that's what actually appeals to me is yeah. the directness of the 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 appeal. Stay, right? <laughs> Just stay. A, lo- a sentence to itself. I I'm kind of I'm kind of in love with that. But the sentimentality matches the moment in the poem. Yeah. So she keeps that even. Right. I love the image, all was dark except where we glimpsed ballroom dancers flickering like moths through a window. That's great. My own definition of sentimentality is unearned emotion, and I think this definitely earns the emotion. Yeah. Um, but I, I do think the prosody and the craft really help. So, like, the, the moment that uh, Lauren called attention to. And also, look at this. Um, at dinner, we spoke to each other, end of line, end of stanza, one or two words only. And that's so beautifully done, the way that, that turns back on itself and sort of changes the syntax and what it's meant. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Jason, like, like just pushing down into the next stanza, right? So one or two words only, yet here we are, line break, alone in your car, while I cast my net, break, stanza break for something to say and it's that it's that double moment of like casting the net trying to contain somebody trying to latch on or capture right keeping the person in place but the net is really like she's struggling for something to say so you get that double whammy of like let me find the word that holds you and and she can't and i I don't have this other other than stay yeah Yeah. and i and i I think that, that that casting of the net for something to say I don't think that's followed by what is actually said in the recalled situation. I mm, think that's yeah. the essence of what the speaker wanted to say and wasn't able to. That yeah. they would be inadequate in the situation to persuade the beloved, but is certainly adequate in the poem to break our hearts as readers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I do love the feeling that we're in a private conversation, that there are two characters here that I start to get to know almost because of the strong feelings that one is having about the other. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's funny. I remember when I read The Batch, 
I actually thought this was a piece of lost colony and it goes to what Tim was saying. Like she really works this terrain of like loss and grief, departure, abandonment, right? Like those, that seems to be the the ground she's working. And so honest to goodness, I actually thought this was another section of lost colony. I did too. Right. Yeah. 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 I don't know guys, am I moving too fast? If I say let's call a vote on this. I, I don't think so, because I think that one of the ways that our editorial process works is that we talk until we seem to all be on the same page. Yeah. <laughs> and I think yeah. We're all on the same page. Yeah. Okay. All right. Let's do it. One, two, three, vote. Okay. There's three thumbs up in the studio. And there's three yes votes on the, in the, uh, so Clara is raking them in. I mean, really, you wow, guys, I would just tired. keep, I would just keep sighing. I would just keep going. Yeah. Like that, that's about what I have to say about this poem. So, all right. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Um, so this, uh, it's, it's terrific to move through. And now we've had that first poem was, um, Four sections, each each formatted a bit differently. The last section was an actual letter. The second poem that we just did was far more of a traditional poem. Let's call it with, you know, maybe three line stanzas, everything kind of left justified, shorter lines. Now we have a poem by the same author, our last one from Clara Chang today, called The Other Side of Night. And it's a dense prose block. And I'm wondering mm. who would like who would like to take a crack at reading that. You want to? I'll, I'll read it. Tim's yeah. going to get that for us. The other side of night. The Buddhist monk instructs us to pay attention to our breathing, but all I can think of is the way you touched me before I left for Utah, like oil splattered on the wrist, like snow falling on bare shoulders. For the next two years, the great bowl of the Salt Lake Valley was cleft by a chasm I could not close. The mountains are taller than I imagined. The Great Plains is vast like the Pacific Ocean. The distance between one who loves and one who doesn't. Not able to turn back, the people who lost everything built a city praising God on the snow-white shores of that inland sea, and all who came to it admired its ship-like tabernacle, its broad avenues, its temples without windows. At the bottom of my suffering, there is a door. The latch opened and I sank. I breathed in water and breathed out love. So much of it that it filled the oceans and the air, and the fish grew wings and the birds grew gills, and the eyes of the people were opened and no one killed or hurt one another because they saw the wound they carried in themselves in each other. Mm -hmm. Wow. So yeah, similar sort of vibe going on in this poem yeah. where she gets it, where she saves it at the end, I think, again. Yeah. Where it's it, you it, she she makes you feel sad about what's happening in the poem, but then she creates an image and and uh, puts it in the sort of light that uh, that uh, I don't know really any other way to put it. She sort of, she just sticks to landing. She she, yeah. finishes, she finishes <laughs> yes. the poem she does. without she does. Uh, without Working messing it up. The figurative and the literal and the you know I mean when it gets to there's this, there's this, you know this beautiful figurative description of Salt Lake City, and then all of a sudden this totally metaphorical at the bottom of my suffering there is a door. Oh, I love that line. Yeah. 
sort of, I mean, it's, it, it's so gorgeous and you don't so realize that you're being set up for that. And yet it's so perfect when it arrives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was exactly the line I would have quoted right out of there. Damn. It's a hard line to Damn. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And well, the one that comes next, the latch opened and I sank and I get there and I'm like, oh man, she just like broke my heart and it's keeping me broken. Right. <laughs> like I'm, she's going to keep me in this sadness, but then she, she resurrects it. Right. Like I breathed in water and breathed out love. And then the project of the rest of the poem turned, it turns on this moment of it's a happiness project. Like this isn't nihilism. This isn't the end of things. Right. It is a kind of like heart mending, which is such a surprise after, you know, the heartbreak, heartbreak, heartbreak of the stuff that's come before it, like Lost Colony, the poem that we just looked at. And then this is like, don't, it's like, don't mistake me. My heart is full. Right. And that's Mm -hmm. lovely. Like a really surprising, you know, and ending. The suffering is the beginning of kindness, right. Mm -hmm. But because they're wounded, Mm -hmm. if they can see the suffering, that's the beginning of the end to the suffering. Yeah, I think yeah. that last line really brings in some like universality there and is like a, you know, we're dealing with this idea of like abandonment and distance and separation. Um, and there at the end, you really get the feeling of, you know, a coming together, a similarness, a likeness. So. Yeah. Thank you, Lauren. I think, you know, you know, we're, we're referring to the other two poems, but they're they're each so gorgeous in their own way individually if I read any one of these mm-hmm. alone. I, I would want to put them in separate issues so that they're not kind of resonating against each other. There's not the the, the chance of the error that Marion was saying where you kind of see it as part of um Lost Colony. I'd want to see this actually in a different issue than Lost Colony. Oh really? Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I guess we have to vote first, though. <laughs> <laughs> it seems like we 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 are already ready, listeners. Right. This is not this is not how it usually happens. There's usually we can <laughs> we can talk about a six line poem for yeah, forty five minutes, yeah. like a Julia Child cooking show. Make the sausage. That's so funny. Okay, you guys ready? One, two, three, vote. And yet again, there's three thumbs up in the studio and there's three yes votes remote. So um, I don't know if we have ever gone three for three and unanimous. This is extraordinary. And guess what, you guys? It's episode three. (laughs) Now I'm a little scared. That's some magic. That's some magic right there. Shoot. What's the date? Oh, it's not March 3rd. Thank God. Is it 23rd? It no, is the 23rd. No, 24th. no, it's the 24th. It's 24th. <laughs> well, you are in the future, Mayor, Dr. Ren, well, but it's wait, still the so 24th. Listen, from, from the future, I'm noticing a three, right? And that is that Miriam and Marion sound alike, so that's us two. But Lauren <laughs> called me Ren, which made me think that Lauren sounds like L apostrophe Ren, like Ren and <laughs> Lauren. So we are. We've got all kinds of crazy synergy. Um, yeah, well, it's the magic third episode. Mm-hmm. So indeed, indeed. Right. Well, all right. Well, congr- congratulations to Clara. We'll send her a contract right away. Make sure that nobody else scoops up any of that work. Mm-hmm. And um, 
And, you know, really, if this was a real meeting, we would probably sit back and sigh for a minute or two. <laughs> but I think because it's a podcast, we should roll on and look at the next one we have up here, which is uh, Roger yeah. Camp's Writing Your Aura. Who wants to who wants to read that? Jason? Uh, sure. I can do that. Writing Your Aura. In front of the Bank of America, a bank protection officer lays hands on the newspaper stand like a man who knows his way around an altar. There's no mistaking him for the bank guard of my youth. The graying, hot-bellied, retired cop, well-laundered in blue, dozing inside the doorway. A new age version, this man is outside, swathed in black like SWAT, protective vest and automatic in hand. Shooting your way out of a bank is one thing, but shooting your way in? Seeing Isaac, patriarch of the sidewalk, return my tale if I were a robber of banks. Friendly, he has earned Main Street's affection, every pedestrian watching his back. When I wear a lid he likes, I get a fist bump. Hidden in his casual demeanor is no slouch. Behind those shades, a warrior, Iraq, or maybe Afghanistan. At peace with himself, he is adept at reading others. Greeting him after returning from six sunny days in Alaska, he said to me, that was you, riding your aura. Very nice. Thank mm-hmm. you. It feels nice to say. It, it's definitely, it definitely works in the mouth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the use mm-hmm. of libraries to kind of guide the syntax, I think, is really well done. I like that it's a character study in a way. You know, mm-hmm. the whole thing is is this is Isaac, patriarch of the sidewalk, mm-hmm. right? I think at first I was kind of um, like thrown off a bit by the it. It doesn't seem to fit. You know, and the character, him being kind of like, I, my first thought was like hippy dippy, like riding your aura. What kind of cop says that? But, um, you know, we go back up in the, the new age, the capital new age version. Um, you know, so I think that kind of ties together. Tim, does it resonate for you? The thing that resonates with me is it scares me a little bit <laughs> where we used to have this nice cop with a pot belly. <laughs> and now we have this uh, this mm. this guy who came from uh, a war zone and yeah. he's treating us like we're in a war zone. And if I mm. was reading this um, – if I was from another country, I would I would wonder if there's some sort of martial law going on here. To me, it's it's a little oh. disturbing that everything is getting so amped up that we have that the I mean, when a bank's robbed, they don't really do anything. They just hit the button and they let them get away, and then the bag explodes and they chase them. You don't really need somebody who looks scary because you want people coming to the banks. <laughs> <laughs> You want people to think that nothing ever happens, but banks get robbed pretty frequently. Yeah. And um, it just seems like there's more cops, more SWAT teams, more 
uh, more body armor, more tanks, yeah, all that stuff. True. To me, it's disturbing. And I like so that's what I like about the poem is that it speaks to what's happening, and um, I, it's a, it speaks to a disturbing trend. Mm. So that that's what how it resonates with me as far as the themes of it. Mm -hmm. Dr. Ren, are you still here? Jason, are you still here? I am still here. Um, <laughs> what are you thinking about? I don't know. There, there are some lines which, which I'm not in love with. Like the shooting your way out of a bank is one thing, but shooting your way in. I, I'm, uh, I'm not loving that question. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, I don't know, some, some of the, the, the sort of, because, right, I mean, part of what's working in the poem is that there is this tension or juxtaposition between the scariness of the martial law and the kind of um, violence that's inherent in his role. Um, and ideally, you know, this is kind of like, right, the nation state reserves violence for itself and is the only one which uses it and uses it in the enforcement of law. Um, but then there are sort of all of these places that are sort of cute. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure if that yeah. tension is really working for me 100%. I mean, I kind of want to hear what other people think about it. Because like, it's, it's, you know, um, hidden in his casual demeanor is no slouch, right? I mean, sort of the understatement in that is... But but then but then there isn't knowledge of him, right? I mean, like that's the weird thing. It's like on one hand, Isaac Patriarch of the Sidewalk. It, it's this character sketch of someone he knows, and yet there's all this guessing, right? Mm -hmm. A warrior, Iraq, maybe Afghanistan, right? Like he doesn't know. Uh, and you know, um, he's Main Street's affection. He has earned Main Street's affection, so it's in a small enough place. That people know him. Everyone has his back. He gives the, our speaker a fist bump when he wears hats he likes, right? That then he is, like Tim was saying, he's like the sign of a new, um, more more fortified stage of bank security. And the fact, you know, he's outside the bank building. Um, that's all kind of disconcerting. Mm. Well, I was thinking also about um, what it means to protect the banks and how, as a country, we have been protecting the banks in ways that are not good for the kind of individual. I'm thinking of like on a corporate crime level. Mm -hmm. And um, the idea that you have this guy stationed outside as though someone might want to assault the institution of the bank, right. that he just becomes really part of the scenery for the people who are around him in a way that we don't necessarily focus on. And therefore, we're not really understanding why he might actually be there. Um, I actually really liked that tension. And I liked the cute moments that brought it out. I love that. But I, for me, the cute language Mm -hmm. distracts me from that. Mm -hmm. But I, I love that interpretation too. Just he's out there just a reminder that um that they're how they're protected as uh a dominant part of our culture. Uh but yeah the cute stuff sort of distracts me from it. I think the cute stuff to me I interpret it almost as a warning about what you get comfortable with or what you notice but simultaneously ignore because someone complimented your cool hat mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
peace with himself, he is adept at reading others. <laughs> yeah. What does it mean to ride your aura? Is that like slang that I don't know? Mm. I don't know. I don't know. So I don't know what riding your aura means either. And I want to say that that's embarrassing because my sister's a professional psychic and she makes her <laughs> living reading people's auras. Right. So I feel like I want to email her. Or she should have tipped you off. <laughs> she should have tipped you off before the meeting. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. So that, so that's my confusion. I don't actually understand what riding your aura means so my- that it's the title and the last line. I just feel a little baffled. Yeah. Um, so that, I guess that was, and then the, the second thing that leaves me a little bit baffled, I, I love the way Jason read the poem, like mm-hmm. it, the way it sits on the page, just, it, it wants to be read and it wants to be sort of in the mouth as Jason said. Right. And in that very first, like one, two, three, four, five, like five lines, um, it strikes me so much like a Billy Collins poem. There's like some sort of like, um, quality of like, uh, benign and yet vicious description. Right. Mm -hmm. And I can almost see like this cartoon version of the thing, like, you know, that he knows how to lay his hands on an altar, Mm -hmm. but I actually don't understand it. Like I can't quite envision what's happening. And, and that to me is a little like disconcerting and not in a way that makes me feel, Oh, this is uncanny. He's giving me something really familiar, but in a strange way, it, it just makes me feel like a doofus. Like I just can't <laughs> see it, you know? My thoughts on the, the, like a man who knows his way around the altar. Um, I just took that as, you know, another, you know, like the institution of the bank, the institution of religion. And later on we yeah. have the patriarch, yeah. you know, seeing Isaac, the patriarch of the sidewalk. Um, so that's, kind of how I took that. Yeah. And then honestly, yeah. my read of writing your aura, I thought six sunny days in Alaska, maybe he went snowboarding and he had a good time <laughs> snowboarding yeah, and he yeah, was writing yeah. his aura, you know, so I don't, yeah. I don't know. I yeah, actually, might be a, I, I, yeah. I like, yeah. <laughs> go ahead. Jason, are you going to stop? Okay. Oh, I, I, I thought that the, the, the thing about the writing the aura was a good comment. He sees him physically change. He's, he's gotten darker. Hmm. I just wanted to go back to Isaac for a second uh-huh. because I think that there's something about um, the sacrificial son, like the guy who was sent to mm-hmm. war and survived. You know, we don't really know how. This is all speculation about this man's background. But the idea that that person who knows his way around an altar because he himself was going to be sacrificed Mm. is now the person that we're trusting on Main Street. I think that there's something there also that um, makes us sympathize with the bank protection officer as much as it makes us nervous. Yeah. So... On that note, greeting him after returning from six sunny days in Alaska kind of uh, takes my mind off of all that stuff because I don't really know what the Alaska thing is about. And then I get confused by writing your aura. Um, So if I so in my fantasy world, if I cut the last few lines off the poem and ended it, he is adept at reading others. I don't know if that finishes the poem, though. Right. I'm not sure if there's a finishing moment before Mm -hmm. that. 
because I like all these things that we're talking about, even though I don't like the SWAT guy and his armor and all that <laughs> yeah. stuff. That, all this stuff bothers me, but I like that we're talking about it in the poem. And then we get to the six sunny days in Alaska, and I wonder if we're now talking, to, thinking about the poet instead of the poem. I think we are, mm-hmm. yeah. right. And, and suddenly that, it's about the poet, yeah. and it hasn't been the whole time. And, right. and that part bothers me a little bit. Yeah. I also think it's a reversal of expectations, though, like kind of um, what Lauren said earlier about how you wouldn't expect this SWAT looking guy to say something that sounds more perhaps hippie ish. Mm-hmm. And I think that that reversal um, is not necessarily supposed to be funny, but actually does wind up being funny. Mm hmm. Well, here's a non sequitur for you. I, I just Googled riding your aura. And the first thing that comes up is aura, which are um, pants <laughs> uh, made by Wrangler and they're proportioned for um, slim fit. So that's all I get when I Google riding your aura. <laughs> slim fit jeans, <laughs> which is Total, totally nonsensical. I thought for sure the inter- internet would teach me something zen and, I don't know, um, new agey about it, but it's a bust. <laughs> so what, what in, in, where are people in terms, like what, what would we need to talk about to help people make a decision? Like what do people want to kind of like contemplate or should we see where we are? I think we can vote or we can maybe... Is- is this something we could request edits? Oh, the Abu Dhabi clock is telling us that it's um, 10 p.m. there. But, uh, but I think that that's a good that's a good signal. We'll take the clock as a clue yeah. that we should vote okay. on this poem. So okay. one, two, three, vote. So in the room we have. Um, Two no's and a yes. What do we have remotely? One yes, one no, one maybe. Oh, who voted maybe? <laughs> Come on. Even without the maybe, we've got four no's, two yeses. Yeah, yeah, it's out. It's out. Um, now that we know it's out, I guess I could say that, like, I don't know what the takeaway is in the end. Like, we were making all of those interesting comments, but is that what you would think if you read it? Like, I don't know what our, what our ultimate takeaway is. So, yeah, I mean, I, I have to agree. Like, there's there's something like so capable and lovely in the voice of the poem, but it doesn't it didn't like del- ultimately deliver for me for me, for my reading. So I yeah. don't know what. It, it's definitely the worth discussing. Away, there was something in there. Yeah. There was something in there, but it yeah. just wasn't close enough, I guess. So, okay, yeah. Roger Camp. Sorry about that one, but we have one more by Roger Camp. It's called Cape Cod. Anybody want to do the honors on that? I'll do it. Okay. Um, so, Cape Cod. The cape itself is like a snake at its serpentine end. Beyond a place the charts call Long Point is an echo of the Cape, a final coil within a coil. Walking in beech forest, I saw two snakes, their chocolate-colored bellies and trilateral yellow stripes entwined, age and youth combined. The older, larger one, sensing me, held still 
while his younger, slimmer companion slid its body alongside contour, unfolding contour. In my effort to follow, I lost focus, lost the snakes, unable to define a coil within a coil, unable to tell beginning from end, lost my way as well, wending tail to tail. I hate for the first comment to be a negative one, but I really don't like that last line. That's, that's um, you know, to not just be subjective and say don't like. I mean, suddenly we have rhyme internal and and it's just uh, uh, no. No on the last line. Um, <clears throat> so it's never good to make your last line be the thing that people tell the line we don't like, right? <laughs> Now, um, the cape itself is like a snake. I didn't like the first line. Let me be honest. <laughs> I, didn't like, I didn't like snake and serpentine. It seemed very redundant to me. Oh. Well, okay. So uh, let me jump in, Lauren mm-hmm. and Kathleen. Reading it was a pleasure. Like, mm-hmm. it really was. Mm-hmm. There was something, um, like, kind of delicious about the the entwining of all of it, right? So that, that last line, lost my way as well, wending tail to tail, like it's it's just this tangle of of um, sounds that illustrates this snake ball that he's describing, right? So, um, so for for what it's worth, there's there is a bit of pleasure in the reading of it. That's all. Hmm. I, I I agree with Mary that if you follow the consonants um, across that first line, the cape itself is like a snake at its serpentine end. The way the S carries across the whole thing, and then the repeating um, P sounds. I, I, I really actually liked a lot of the repetitions, the contour unfolding contour. Um, I, I was okay with um, lost my way as well, wending tail to tail. I mean, it, to me, it was almost like Anglo-Saxon, right? I mean, you have those two mm-hmm. strong assonants, sorry, those two really strong consonances on either side of the line with that really strong sejura in the middle. I was, I was into it. From its soundy, you like its sounds. Yeah, lost my way as well, wending tail to tail. Mm-hmm. And the line before it, unable to tell beginning from end, right? Like he's he's anticipating the the L and the and the the vowel sound of the E, right? Like it it's it is it is artful, and it's and it's I don't know, like reading it on the page, I didn't get it the first time, but speaking that out loud, it's um it it's it's performing in language, the thing that it's describing, right? And it's, 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 it's interesting indeed. Hmm. I like the image in the middle of the poem. I think, I mean, personally, if I could shave off the first line and the last two lines, I think I would, I would like the poem altogether. I don't particularly dislike the first line. The last two lines for me kind of bother me. Um, And the last, the last line is a little sing-songy for me, but I like mm-hmm. the image of the the chocolate-colored bellies and the trilateral yellow. I think that's that's pretty beautiful. Probably my sound. favorite line. But then again, I like chocolate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> How do you tell an old snake from a young snake? That's that's the thing that baffles me. I mean, it's, it, is there are there distinguishing features of old oh, and young? Said snakes? it was bigger, right? Yeah. Well, maybe. I bet you. I bet you. Okay. Old ones start yeah. looking dried up. Yeah, it does. Like and older, I'll bet you the color changes, line. too. The color gets duller, yeah. right? Yeah. 
I'm like, and when I think about like, if I were walking down a path, seeing a ball of entwined snakes, right? Like <laughs> good on you, Roger Camp from like staying and looking. Cause I had a turn tail. <laughs> <laughs> One running tail to tail. <laughs> Bye. <Bye-bye. Yeah. laughs> I'm out. Yeah. That's funny. Yeah. Uh, uh, I, I want to vote. <laughs> is it possible is it to have one of the conversations about asking for an edit with the last line? But maybe, maybe not, since that's what Jason <laughs> likes. <so much. laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm sorry, Chase. Oh, crap. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Jason had something wise to say, and he's just, cl- he's just, uh, he's muted. He got sorry, muted. Sorry. There uh, you are. <laughs> I, I think it's built around a five stress line, isn't it? Yeah. The cape itself is like a snake and it's serpent and um, lost my way as well, wending tail to tail. Maybe it's a six. I'm, I'm having a hard time counting. But I don't know. I, I thought the prosody <laughs> was solid in this one. All right. Yeah. I I personally just feel converse, conversationed out on it. But if other people still mm-hmm. want to talk, talk about it, that's great. Are we good? I'm good. I can vote. All right. One, two, three, vote. We have three thumbs down in the studio. Wow. Oh, interesting. Because guess what just happened? Three votes <laughs> up. Ooh. Son of a yeah. bitch. How can I arm wrestle you when you're in Abu Dhabi? <laughs> now what? That's fascinating. That's fascinating. Mm-hmm. Well, because usually if we have a tie in one staff, we can send it to another staff. Yeah, but we're mingling so our we're staff. Oh, can we ask Joe yeah. the engineer to vote? <laughs> what should we? Seriously. Well, I guess what we're going to have to do is um, Philadelphia is having an editorial meeting on Thursday. And um, I'll bring it to the Philadelphia table and um, and see what happens there. Uh, the Philadelphia table, because we are housed here at Drexel, tends to have anywhere between nine and 12 people voting at at any given editorial meeting. So there'll be a lot of voices and a lot of um, fresh thoughts there. So this is interesting, but I guess episode three had all kinds of wild magic in it. And we, uh, <laughs> we have a wait, tie. Wait a second. Kath- Kathleen, I have to interrupt. Look at that. It was three yeses and three no's. <laughs> yeah. So we'll take it. We'll take it to the Philadelphia meeting and we'll um, be sure to let the listening audience know, because I'll bet they'll be hanging on every word. Um, we we've already gone an hour, so we had lots of other cool things to do. But I think that we should um, say sign off of episode three. But I would like to say um, to our listeners, look forward to um other things we're going to do as well as discuss poems. We're going to have some occasional segments like something random I saw in a literary magazine this week. That's going to happen every now and then. We're going to do things that piss editors off. We're going to do a convo, a convo about that. Um, on a podcast? On a podcast, yeah. Yeah, that'll be one of us. It'll be a special segment at some point. So whatever else we can dream of, we will have special segments and uh, would love to know what you think of what we're doing on our Facebook page. And we'll be posting threads for each episode. Um, Thank you for your patience as we're learning um, what to do as we go. As you just saw, (laughs) we just had a tie. At one point, (laughs) I even thought I'm never going to have an even number. But look at what just happened. 
Um, sign up for our mailing list, which you can get to easily on the website. Go to pbq.drexel.edu, and um, you can sign up for a mailing list there. Anybody else have anything else to say? And then there's sign off. Okay, well, keep reading. Thank you very much. Bye. 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 <laughs> okay, you guys don't Bye. really have to go. So don't you? That's a probably a good solution for that palm, right? Yeah, that's what we'll do. Yeah, yeah, we'll yeah. yeah. You know, it's it funny. And I just I looked at my calendar too to see when um, we were meeting, but I think you guys are meeting before us, so that works. Yeah, we're meeting tomorrow. So, um, Jason, you don't like the you don't like do, uh, the idea of things that piss editors off.